Um, if you have your Bibles, um, just reach for them now. We're going to uh, read a couple of Psalms or uh, part of a couple of Psalms. Uh, first of all, Psalm 91. So Psalm 91. And uh, beginning at verse 1, Psalm 91 from verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And then moving uh, back in the Psalms to Psalm uh, 72. Psalm 72. Uh, it looks as though this is a prayer of David for his uh, son Solomon, a prayer for when he would be king, that God would bless him. And of course, the language goes beyond an earthly king and reminds us of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Messiah. So Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And then verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Well, amen. And may God bless his word to us this morning and uh, give us understanding of it. It's lovely to be uh, with you again this morning. I said last time it reminded me of the, the Waltons as you were all calling out one another's names and saying good morning to one another. Of course, they said it at night, um, but you were uh, calling out one another's names morning, 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 so and so. Uh, but this morning it reminded me of the Don Chorus, just uh, all of you chattering away uh, to one another. It's actually such a lovely sound and uh, just nice for me to listen in and hear uh, the obvious friendship and warmth. That's such an important thing uh, in a congregation. It's nice to be with a group of more than conquerors. I, I love that song and I love the, the dancing along to it. It was really, really well done. It was really good. And uh, I think it's an amazing phrase, more than conquerors. 
you know, you, you know what a conqueror looks like. You can explain a conqueror because they look mighty, they look impressive. I think the amazing thing about more than conquerors is that anyone looking in, uh, to anyone looking in and, and thinking, how on earth did they conquer? Because they see our weaknesses and they see our frailties and they see the things that are against us and so on. Uh, a more than a conqueror doesn't look like a conqueror. They sometimes look very pathetic, they sometimes look very weak, and yet somehow at the end of it all, after all the battles, they're still standing. And uh, looking at you uh, in all your wee pictures up on screen, uh, some of you I'm sure are battling with old age, and some of you are battling with ill health, some of you are maybe tearing your hair out, uh, being locked up for weeks and end with your children, uh, but that's what makes you more than conquerors, you're still standing. Uh, through the grace and through the strength of the Lord. So it's lovely to be with you. I want to think with you um, about uh, themes surrounding the uh, coronavirus and so on. Uh, I think that's causing a lot of anxiety. I think it's also causing uh, some sort of confusion. I get quite a lot of communication uh, and I think it co it's causing some sort of confusion and concern and anxiety among the people of God. And we can get to that by uh, looking at Psalm 91 together. Uh, you maybe remember me saying I was a minister for about 16 years up in the north of Scotland. And there was uh, quite an eccentric man there. And uh, he really was eccentric, but I loved him and I loved going to see him partly because of his eccentricity. And he had a lovely uh, faith as well, quite a vibrant faith. But it, it was a bit unusual around the edges. For example, he believed that if God gave you a psalm, that you would live to that age. So his psalm was Psalm 91, and he believed he would live to Psalm 90 until uh, he was 91. And having explained this rather weird theology, he asked me, well, what's your favorite psalm? And I said, 139. And he looked at me as though I was crazy, and he already probably knew I thought he was crazy. Um, he didn't live till he was 91, and I don't expect to live uh, to 139. Hope I live a long time to uh, be with my loved ones and to serve the Lord, but I don't know, that's not in my control. Uh, God knows the days that were formed for any one of us before any of them have uh, come to be. But Psalm 91, I believe, um, is at the root of some people's confusion, some believers' confusion. Because they read Psalm 91, and it seems very, very clear. Do you remember what we read earlier? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then moving down in verse 5, it seems to be an outright promise to those who do that. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. And some people are confused by that because we go on and read, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And the confusion is this, the coronavirus is coming near God's people. The coronavirus is affecting God's people. It is affecting those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
who said of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress and I trust in him. Can you see the confusion that some people are getting in touch with me about? Psalm 91 has maybe been precious to them for a very long time. And when this coronavirus broke out, it was the psalm that automatically they went to. And they seemed to take from it this promise that the coronavirus would not come near believers. But of course it is. How do we explain that? I think it's really important that we use the psalms carefully. I don't know the right way to express this, but I think it's wrong to take all our doctrines from one single psalm. The psalms are full of different voices and you really need to know the context of each one so that you know to what extent it is relevant for you at any given moment. Probably you know this as you've read the Psalms. There's so many voices. I remember being at a minister's prayer meeting in Castletown, just along from Thurso in the north of Scotland. And I was feeling great because things were going well. And I'd been reading the Psalms and I was just noting how much there, there is of rejoicing and dancing and celebration. And I went into the prayer meeting just full of these Psalms of joy and triumph and deliverance and salvation and another minister before i expressed all this said i've been reading the psalms have you ever noticed how much sorrow there is and how much lament and that seemed to fit in with where he was so the psalms have so many different voices and it's really important that we don't base all our living all the time on only one or two you see, I think there's a very specific context of Psalm 91. Of course, it's a psalm that had its setting in Israel. And it had its setting in Israel's history. And I think the key verse that sometimes people overlook is actually verse 8. It, it's such a short verse and we almost just overlook it. It just says this. You will look with your eyes and see the recompense of the destruction of the wicked. That's the key for understanding Psalm 91. This emerges from Israel's history. They were very conscious of being a people whom the Lord had set free. Do you remember their situation in Egypt? That God had visited the Egyptians with plagues and destruction. And the amazing thing is this, it did not come near God's people. It happened to their neighbours. It didn't happen to them. 10,000 could have fallen beside them. But as long as they made the Lord their refuge and sometimes literally made him their shelter, remember, by smearing the blood of the lamb on their doorposts as long as they made the Most High their refuge. Those uh, judgments against the enemies of God's people did not fall on them. And you remember how time and time again in the plagues and everything that we read of in that part of Israel's history, it specifically says that this did not happen to the households of the Israelites. That, I think, is the memory that is behind 
Psalm 91. It is specifically talking about the judgment of God against the wicked and against those who have proven themselves to be enemies of God's people. And I hope you can see from that that though, of course, there's beautiful promises here that we can take hold of, some of these promises have a very specific context, and they're talking about a very specific form of judgment, namely the judgment of God that he sends from time to time, as he did in the Egyptians, the judgment he sends upon the enemies of his people and his enemies. Now, in the light of that, let's just think about the coronavirus. Is it just affecting the enemies of God's people? Is it the judgment of God against his enemies? I would say quite definitely it is not because it's happening to God's people. It's happening to those who do make the Lord their refuge as well as those who have no interest in him and may actually be hostile towards him. So I hope that maybe helps if you've been feeling confused by Psalm 91 because you'll probably know people that have caught this virus and you'll know believers that have caught this virus. I know believers that have caught this virus. So I hope that that sort of explanation might help you if you share this confusion that some people have been speaking to me about and writing to me about because this psalm has long been precious to them but it's now becoming a bit of a source of confusion. Let's just think a wee bit more about judgment, because I think people are asking, is this the judgment of God? We've seen it's not the judgment of God in terms of the judgment that Psalm 91 is speaking about, the judgment of God against his enemies. What other types of judgment do we read of in Scripture? Well, that's why we read from Psalm 72. The king, Solomon, that's being prayed for here, this is how Israel understood things, that the king was God's representative, a representative of his reign upon the earth. And we read here of another form of God's judgment. Give the king your justice, O God and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Now, what does that judgment, what does that justice look like in the hands of the earthly king bestowed upon him to exercise in the name of God? Verse four, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Verse 12, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. 
Here's another form of the judgment of God. It's not the judgment of God against the wicked. It's the judgment of God in favor of the poor and the needy and the oppressed. And so let's again bring the coronavirus into the light of what the scriptures actually teach about how God judges. Is this the judgment of God for the poor? Is it setting things right? Is it lifting up the needy? I hope you can see right away that it's not doing any of these things. If anything, it is more adversely affecting the poor and the needy and the weak. You've probably been following in the news some of the stories. I found it so distressing just to listen to a cancer patient who was exhausted not only from our cancer and the treatment of our cancer, not only from having to bring up our children in the face of that existing weakness, but having to fight all day in order to find a delivery slot, having to stay up until just after midnight just to try and get a delivery slot because despite all the uh, things that have been put in place, these uh, priority being given to those in particular need hadn't yet swung into proper functioning. And she looked so exhausted. She said, I'm just exhausted. I spend my whole day trying to get a delivery slot. This is not the judgment of God that blesses the poor, that rights the balance, as it were, that comes in their favour to lift them up. So when I look at the scriptures, I don't find that the coronavirus fits in with being the judgment of God against the wicked. It is happening to the wicked and the good. I don't find that it's the judgment of God in the positive sense of writing things for the poor and the needy and the weak. It's the opposite of that. Another form of judgment that we read of in the Bible, and we can just almost dismiss this in a sentence because it's so obviously not happening in this coronavirus, it's the judgment that we read of in 1 Peter chapter 4 that talks about judgment beginning with the household of God. Did this coronavirus begin with the household of God? No, it didn't. Can you see where I'm going with this? That the teaching about God's judgment in the scriptures, the coronavirus does not fit in with the teaching of scripture about God's judgment. It is not his judgment against the wicked. It is not him favoring the poor. It did not begin with the household of God. So is it in any sense the judgment of God? Well, in this sense, 
It's what we brought upon ourselves when, when, when from the very start of humanity we turned against the rule and the reign of God and we opened the door to sin and darkness and all that the powers of darkness could bring into human experience and bring into this world. In that sense, it's what we could almost call background judgment. Not active judgment against the wicked, not active judgment for the poor, not active purifying judgment for the church. But the background reality of what God said would happen, that when we open the door to sin, the powers of death, the powers of darkness, would inevitably operate. It's what we might call common judgment, the background against which every one of us has to live our lives. And death, physical death, is the ultimate sign of that. Though praise God for those who believe in Christ, even that sign will be reversed. The amazing thing is this, and I want us to get hold of this, that when God set in motion what I'm calling common judgment that would be there right through until Christ comes again. He also filled the world with common grace. Grace is an interesting teaching in the Bible. There's saving grace that belongs to believers, but there's common grace that belongs to all mankind. And so in the early chapters of Genesis, you get some indicators of common graces, blessings that God gives to the world, even though it's turned against him. You begin to see his mercy, his kindness to fallen people, even as he makes clothes for Adam and Eve, even as he puts a mark on Cain to, to, to protect him despite his great sin. But then do you remember what we read in the verses and chapters just immediately after that? We read of music, musical instruments being made and played, invented, made and played. We read of tools being forged. We read of God's blessing to the world. And I believe that in these days when there's this common background reality of this is what happens because we opened ourselves up to the powers of darkness. There's common grace in evidence. I heard a charismatic not terribly long ago really speaking against medical science, speaking against that as though it was in opposition to God. Any good thing can be used in opposition to God. But in itself, medical science, those who look after us, doctors, nurses, the scientists who are trying to find a 
vaccination and a cure. These things are part of God's common grace. His mercy, his love, his care, even for those who will reject him to the end of their lives. I hope that you can see that. And if we can see that, then there's certain challenges, I think, that we need to rise to. You see, in the midst of common grace, one of the ways that that is being made evident is by the astonishing acts of sacrifice and care and love that we're seeing throughout all our communities. And friends, that is common grace because it's not simply happening through believers. It's happening through those who have no interest in God and don't believe in him. It's God's common grace at work through all sorts of people. And here's the challenge. If people can do that by common grace, as those who know extraordinary grace, who know this God, who've come to know him in our lives, who claim to have his love in our hearts. Is there not a challenge for us? As we see what non-believers can do by common grace, don't you think as those who know extraordinary grace that has saved us, that has made us new creatures, that has made us children of this God who first loved us. Don't you think there's a challenge here for us to do what we can? I find myself so frustrated. I'm just sharing this with you. Here I am, I'm shielded. I think I'm gonna be shielded for months unless something actually happens. There's an amazing discovery by the common grace of God or by the prayers of God's people. Just, I, I don't know, apart from something that isn't being envisaged yet, I, I think I'm gonna be shut down for months. And you know, I feel so frustrated by that because I see all these amazing things that people are doing by common grace and I think, well, what can I do? I can maybe give a bit, I can maybe do the odd vlog, but I don't feel I can do very much. I wonder if you feel that. What can I do? And maybe you, like me, maybe your health is not so great, maybe you're older, maybe you're tied up with children and so on and so forth, and maybe you feel, well, well what on earth can I do? It's so easy for the devil to take hold of a good desire and turn it into something that causes us torment. Do you know one of my favorite stories in the Bible? It's uh, when Jesus is anointed and uh, he's anointed once by Mary who anoints his feet 
And then he's anointed a few days later by an unnamed woman who anoints his head. And that's because sacrificial lambs were anointed twice, Passover lambs, once on their feet, and then a few days later on their heads, to symbolize that they were completely pure from toe to head. And you remember in that second anointing, the woman who isn't named is criticized. And you remember what Jesus said, number one, she's done a beautiful thing for me. And number two, she did what she could. You know, sometimes we look at that story and we think what an amazing display of love for Jesus, but that's actually missing the point, getting the hold of the wrong end of the stick, because that woman would have done much more for Jesus if she could. She would have saved him from death if she could. She would have saved him from injustice if she could, but she couldn't do any of that. But she did what she could. She anointed him beforehand in preparation for his burial. And that meant so much to Jesus. And he told the disciples so many times he was going to die, but they didn't seem to get it. In fact, they were having a party at the time. But in the midst of it, this woman seemed to understand. She understood that Jesus was about to die. She understood that he was the sacrificial lamb. And she comes and she pours this ointment over Jesus. She did what she could. She couldn't do it all, but she did what she could. Have you ever thought, a couple of days later, hanging on the cross, the smell of that pure nard would still have been there? Amidst all the sweat and the agony and the blood and the pain, and the mockery and the jeering. The smell of that beautiful nard would still have been around Jesus. I can't prove this, but I think that must have brought a measure of comfort. Somebody understood what I was about to do. The disciples fled. John was nearby. The rest fled. But the smell of that nard would have said somebody understood. She did what she could, and it meant a lot to Jesus. And so I suppose my challenge is this, that God is pouring common grace into background judgment. He's motivating folk by that common grace to do many selfless things. And I suppose I'm just asking, will you take time, even just among yourselves for one another, and then beyond your own numbers maybe, just to ask us this question, Lord, I can't do it all. None of us can. But will you show me something to do to express your love and care, your nearness, your involvement in compassion and kindness in this coronavirus? Will you help me to do something that shows your grace 
that shows your love. Help me not to fall victim to the devil's accusations of me not doing enough. Help me to do what I can. And of course, one of the things you can do if there's an opportunity that presents itself, remind one another of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. Remind non-believers of the gospel too. Because this is a reminder of our mortality. It is a reminder that it's appointed for us all once to die. And then comes judgment. And it's too late when that day comes to look around for a saviour. This is reminding us as well as being full of the common grace of God. It is a serious reminder of our mortality. A serious reminder that the world needs to hear of the one who is the resurrection and the life and they that believe in me though they were dead yet shall they live and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I think I'm coming to a close. I'm really trying to say this. I pray that God will open your eyes to see that he is pouring his common grace into the world's need. Doctors, nurses, quickly advancing medical science and knowledge, extraordinary acts of selfless care. That's what I'm seeing as I look around me now. And I'm asking that you and I as believers will join in in that display of grace. Because we've got something more than that. We actually know this God. And our hearts have been touched with his love. So may we do what we can to show that he cares. To show that he does have compassion upon human need and human desperation and human anxiety and human suffering. So I simply pray that God will bless this word to you and to me myself. May we not go away from it guilty, feeling oppressed that we need to do it all, but let's do what we can because Jesus acknowledges and somebody does what they can. It's a beautiful thing. And it draws forth his commendation. So don't allow his commendation to be turned into the enemies. Bless you. I hope these thoughts have helped you.